The RTS London podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Royal Television Society's London's talk on how um, how, um, legal and commercial teams have responded to COVID-19. My name is Nana Dwodu and I will be moderating this session. By way of background, I worked in content distribution at um, Disney, Hit and um, Mattel. Um, So, TV production faced unprecedented challenges during COVID-19 and last March had to lock down and shut filming. But at the same time, we had soaps like EastEnders and Coronation Street predict that they were going to run out of new episodes by June. But at the same time as that, we had um, people working from home and we had schools shut. So there was more demand for content than ever before. So joining me to discuss these issues, we have Olushoga Adamo, who is Head of Business Affairs at ITV Studios. Damien Kent, Vice President for Legal and Business Affairs, scripted at Fremantle. Katrian Roos, who is TV and Film Associate at law firm Harbottle and Lewis. And Nick Smith, Executive Vice President for Formats at All Free Media International. So to kick off, um, can you take us through some of the key impacts on television programming and production as a result of the pandemic? And just tell us a bit about how the response was managed, um, you know, personally for you and at your org. Um, Olusoka, do you want to start? Thanks for having me. Um, Well, last year during the height of the pandemic, I was working for uh, two non-scripted labels within ITV Studios. One was ITV Daytime, uh, responsible for most of their daytime programming from GMB to uh, this morning, and also a uh, a, a factual uh, label called Multi-Story Media. So some of our productions were actually uh, left intact. Actually, we were still able to produce and and, and, and uh, ITV was still able to broadcast those productions. But uh, obviously we had to find new ways of working, working from home with children being from, uh, at home. We all had to get used to that blurred line between work and, and, uh, and uh, uh, non-work uh, life. So it, productivity was, was, was quite a big uh, impact on definitely members of, of my team and my immediate colleagues and just how to deal with that level of productivity and the, and the level of work that was required just to make sure that we didn't lose further commissions and what we could do just to make sure that those commissions that were suspended, uh, there was a way around that. So uh, productivity and the impact and just new ways of working from home, uh, that was quite a big deal uh, for us. But uh, I think we managed it very well. Oh, thanks for that. Um, why don't we go to you, Damien? Sure. I think I'm um, picking up on uh, Sugar's point at the end there about productions having to suspend. I think largely the first things was essentially productions had to be suspended or, or, or stood down generally. So that meant looking at cast contracts, crew contracts, um, supplier, facility services, venues that were hired, um, all involved looking at the contracts for these agreements um, and seeing was for example, was there a situation where COVID would be covered under the terms of the agreement? What payments would need to be made if so? Generally, um, COVID wasn't wrapped into sort of force majeure clauses, which I'll get into a bit later. I think some of the questions go to that, but generally COVID isn't a scenario that anyone foresaw. So it meant going back to broadcasters as producers um, and and agreeing what payments would need to be made to essentially get out of these, these contracts. And it meant in some cases paying the contract to the very end, and in some cases, it meant agreeing a compromise position where you pay a certain stand-down cost. Um, so it was more expensive, um, an additional cost on the budget. And um, last year, I worked at a, a multi-genre company, so I was across entertainment shows, scripted programming as well as factual. Um, and entertainment shows, of course, you can you can't have audiences, and and generally today you can't. So one of the workarounds is seeing where you can contract directly certain members of the public to be part of the editorial rather than as an audience. Um, so big shows like Brent Scott's Talent and X Factor, you generally can't film those sorts of shows. And I worked on a number of shows with various broadcasters that stopped for that reason because it required an audience to make the show. Documentaries and factual okay. can largely continue because um, you're having one-to-one interviews and talking heads so you can socially distance and do that safely. Um, and drama require you know requires so much cast quarantining prior to because you've got different 
people mixing. Obviously, no one's from the same household, so it was a testing regime throughout prior oh. to and throughout. And hence, if you look at Gogglebox, you're generally filming with households, so there's no real worry there about the people you're working with. But of course, you need to do your due diligence and health and safety checks and testing with crews that are entering the houses um, to film, etc. So a, a mixed experience across the genres, really. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Katrian, how, um, like, why don't we go with to you? Thanks, Nana. Um, so I'm obviously approaching this a little bit differently uh, to the others on the panel because I'm in private practice. Okay. So we were advising a kind of broad range of kind of uh, producer clients um, who are obviously affected by the pandemic. So in terms of just drawing some of the themes out there that we were seeing, um, um, so some of those were obviously producers grappling with, uh, dealing with new ways of working, um, you know, in compliance with the various enhanced kind of health and safety measures that had to be put in place. Um, producers really thinking outside of the box, um, considering more expensive outside location um, you know, working with smaller crews, using fewer extras. Um, and then secondly, you know, obviously we're, we're advised on contracts, uh, both contracts that had been entered into um, already at the time of the pandemic, pandemic, and then also thinking kind of ahead in terms of what changes needed to be made to kind of contract templates to kind of deal with this new reality going forward. And then just the last point, um, there was obviously a lot of kind of changing government rules and guidance. And, you know, we were just on an ongoing basis advising producers on those and, and how best to deal with their kind of practical and legal implications. Um, so, yeah, that, that's it for me. OK, perfect. And um, Nick. So, yeah, I'd uh, um, concur with uh, with the other views. We've uh, faced a lot of the same um, issues, but maybe something different that I could talk about is working for the distribution arm of all three media. Um, we deal with broadcasters all around the world and they've had um, massive holes appear in their schedules uh, because of the pandemic with events being cancelled, such as the European Football Championships and the Olympics and uh, Eurovision. I know that might be um, uh, maybe a little bit of a, a laughing stock in the UK, but it's taken very seriously uh, uh, throughout Europe. Um, and so that actually presented a bit of an opportunity um, because uh, there was a market for uh, either tape sales, um, uh, ready-made uh, programs uh, to be sold to broadcasters or um, for them to commission formats that could be made um, during the pandemic. So um, I guess looking at it as, a, as, as, as some upside uh, in amongst all the kind of, uh, horrific uh, uh, changes that happen. Okay, great. Um, so that kind of sort of leads on to the next question where we talk about um, how was the shortfall in programming sort of dealt with? Because um, obviously that would have been a huge challenge. And we, we obviously saw that there are opportunities to be able to still do um, like, you know, things like Gogglebox or The Cube, but like how, like, do you want to speak to what other challenges that um, you faced in terms of trying to fix this shortfall in programming? Um, should we start with um, Olushoga? Well, as I alluded to earlier, um, it was very fortunate with the labels I was working with. Uh, a lot of our productions were able to continue. For example, uh, GMB and this morning, they had to change format and they had to change several of our protocols. And it was a real testament to some of my colleagues that actually managed to do all of that within a short space of time. So that in itself was, was a challenge. Um, and I suppose with the shortfall in content for broadcasters, it was really a case of having to look back at our sort of chest of, of content uh, things that we had made and we still have the rights to could we repackage those and if we could could we do it for the right price and were the people available and could we get to the facilities in order to do that or did we need to somehow get editing facilities off-site or in people's homes so that that was challenging um but there were opportunities there there were opportunities to look at our old catalog and maybe to have that content on so although people maybe roll their eyes like charlie from casualty at the fact that they're seeing lots of repeats on television but the fact is that there was content there but it just had to be changed and we just had to make sure that the necessary rights uh were were either there or were subsequently acquired in order for that broadcast to take place thank you um damien did you have anything to add 
Sure, I think just in terms of challenge of just running as a business, certain unscripted producers not to speak for everyone or too soon. I think for certainly for unscripted producers, or particularly that are relying on um, entertainment programming or audiences or you know public audiences to attend recording, um, and that rely on quick turnaround volume productions, I think it's really damaging. You know, there's smaller margins on non-scripted shows, generally speaking. And so when a business model is set up to rely on non-scripted shows and volume shows throughout the year, and you don't have broadcasters ordering shows, it's really damaging. Um, and from speaking to colleagues in the industry, I think scripted producers um, seem to have a better time of it. They have a longer lead time in the development and production process. You know, it takes a long time to get something from script to screen. So the model is set up slightly differently. And it seemed, at least from a revenue furlough salary reduction perspective, I think scripted producers seemed to fare better than what I hear. Um, from a commercial point of view, I think it made producers and certainly unscripted producers consider their portfolio of programming and what programs could be sort of safely made in the pandemic while also retaining editorial quality. From a legal point of view, there's not much that could really be done apart from consider your contracts um, when you're looking to re-engage studios, car supply, etc. to make sure you've got the flexibility um, to, to exit contracts as and when you need to, should things the situation worsen again. And also consider really carefully at whose cost and um, whether the producer pays it or whether the money can be recovered from the cost at the point of needing to exit. Okay, cool. Um, Nick, did you have anything you wanted to sort of add in terms of um, how um, shortfall in programming was addressed? Sure. Um, well, I guess we can. There are there are certain shows that there's just nothing that you can do to to keep them on air. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, um, we had, uh, for example, Race Across the World, uh, which launched at the a new a new series at the beginning of this year on BBC Two and uh, a Danish version in Denmark that we're doing really successfully. Um, uh, and both broadcasters want more. Um, at the moment, obviously, uh, traveling around the world is not something that you can uh, that you can make uh, COVID safe. So that's there's no way to save that program. But um, we've been we've had to work hard on other programming to, to find ways to adapt them so that they can continue on air. Um, we've been very successful with uh, with Gogglebox. Um, uh, normally the, the production crew are in another room uh, in, in the uh, participants' homes uh, now uh, or during the, during the midst of the pandemic when it, when it was being filmed. Uh, the production crews would be outside in vehicles um, and they just had to do some practical things like hire portaloos um, so that the, uh, the production uh, uh, crew had, uh, had facilities to use where they couldn't use the uh, facilities in, in the participants' homes anymore. Um, and yeah, I did. I think it just created more. We had to just be a bit create, creative in terms of uh, looking for opportunities. We have a, a, a show that aired on Channel Four called Celebrity Call Center, and um, we were able to get that commissioned um, in the US, uh, where the celebrities uh, took the phone calls from home, and we created a virtual call center rather than them actually going to a location. It was recorded in mainly in LA, which was. Uh, really badly hit by the pandemic. So I think it's just been about uh, being adaptable and uh, creative uh, to, you know, to make things work during during this tough time. Hmm. Sounds like quite a lot of sort of forward thinking was required. Um, okay, so my next question was about um, any whether there were any sort of key contractual changes that needed to um, happen at the height of the pandemic, and I guess particularly with the first lockdown. Um, Katrine, is that something you've, you'll be able to speak about? Is that, was that for me, Alana? Yes, ab absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so just a, a couple of points that I'll draw out. So firstly, it was kind of... Um, dealing with kind of new COVID policies and procedures and kind of making sure that contracts were drafted broadly enough to kind of cover compliance with the new kind of policies and procedures that producers were putting in place on set, um, you know, whereby kind of cast and crew were having to consent to testing and temperature checks and that kind of thing. Um, and if, you know, if existing contracts didn't, weren't broadly, like broad enough to cover that, then kind of making amendments to those to reflect those types of changes. Um, 
kind of force majeure is another obvious one. I'm sure others on the panel will touch on this as well. But, you know, kind of asking yourself, you know, does does COVID fall within the, dish, in, within the definition of force majeure? Um, force majeure isn't a term that has a kind of standard meaning across all contracts. It can be defined slightly differently in, in every single contract. So it really was a case of kind of looking at lots of different contracts uh, um, of lots of different producers in terms of our advice. Um, you know, we got asked very often whether force majeure, um, sorry, whether COVID was was an act of God, which is a phrase that's often referen referenced in force majeure clauses. Um, and generally, generally the, the answer was no to that question. Um, and also another tricky thing that that is specific to this pandemic is that obviously when it first happened, um, you know, that, you know, in some circumstances, that definitely would have been a force majeure event. But then considering whether kind of the repeated lockdowns and, you know, the repeated events that were happening um, throughout last year and, and continuing now, um, does that continue to be a force majeure event, even though it's now a kind of known pandemic? Um, and then, yeah, suspension, like, you know, does the contract allow the producer to suspend engagements following a force majeure event? Um, do individuals have to be paid during that period of suspension? And um, also just considering whether the force majeure clause kind of allows suspension and termination for force majeure, where performance of the contract hasn't just become kind of um, impossible, but actually has just become harder and more expensive. Um, and whether that, you know, producers can kind of rely on that in that situation. Okay, perfect. Um, Damien, did you want to jump in? Nothing additional, additional to add, really, really sort of succinctly okay. answered and sort yeah. of the points I would have mentioned. So, yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, so what legal considerations needed to be taken into account to get productions restarted? Um, who wants to? Who wants to? to have the bat on that one. Um, Olishoga or Damien? Uh, no, I, I can go on that one. I mean, there, there are many. Um, producers would need to ask themselves lots of questions. Uh, you know, can the production actually be adequately funded? And what terms do you need to uh, sort of incorporate into your agreement just to make sure that it, that does happen? And who's going to pick up uh, any costs that have been incurred as a result of uh, suspension uh, or even maybe abandonment. Uh, and in fact, can the production be legally made? Can you actually contract individuals uh, that you want in that production or that the broadcaster tells you, you know, that this production is key with this broadcast, with, with this presenter or this contributor, but you have to bring that presenter or contributor from an overseas country. Um, you know, we had that on occasion, you know, the whole thing about self-isolating and is it safe to bring them because obviously you don't want to put just them at risk you don't want to put the rest of your crew at, at risk and have any liability there so you know can you actually make a production effectively and protect your cast and crew um uh, uh you know and in, in, in most cases despite your best efforts if you can't do that then, then what happens and you know what what does that speak to in terms of liability and other issues such as you know can you actually film or get to film or get your cast and crew to specific locations. So all, all of that uh, can somehow either lead to costs or somehow lead to you having increased liability. So those are uh, some of the considerations. I mean, there, there, there I'm sure are others, but some of the considerations to bear in mind when you're restarting uh, uh, your production again or a, a new production has just been commissioned. Um... Should we go to Damien next? Um, what 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 did you find were the legal considerations that needed to take into account to um, have programming um, be able to start again? Yeah, I think you know, Sugar outlines sort of this really salient uh, points there and, and salient considerations. I think ultimately, it's just worth stressing, of course, as as employers and as um, engagers of talent and crew, there's obviously a duty of care owed. So, of course, even if you sort of set your place and plan to be able to make the show and you're legally able to do it within the parameters of current government guidelines, et cetera. It's still making sure that you're following the processes rigidly and particularly if you're bringing people from overseas and you're looking at the, the COVID position there and then getting them in to the border. You know, I worked on a show where we had US talent last year coming in to, to work on the UK show um, and that meant various conversations with the insurer 
to make sure that, you know, um, generally production insurance wasn't vitiated. Um, it, it's all very difficult. And of course, people have been now bringing on board COVID, COVID supervisors uh, to make sure that um, the plans are followed and in place because, of course, your broadcasters are also requiring you to follow um, your, your plans and measures and any government guidance because otherwise uh, that also might prevent you getting the funding you need from the broadcaster. So it's those sort of commercial considerations um, coupled with the legal, really, to, to be able to, I guess, get back into production safely and feasibly. Okay, perfect. Um, Katrin, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add. I'll just add um, just one point that we also saw um, that kind of crop up a couple of times in terms of, um, you know, productions getting restarted again, were um, kind of questions around um, kind of data protection. Um, and just kind of thinking about whether, um, you know, the gathering of additional kind of health data that was required under lots of the guidelines, for example, kind of, you know, temp body temperatures, um, you know, recording underlying health conditions of certain crew mem members or cast members and even their family members and that kind of thing. And um, what we also saw was lots of um, producers were kind of uh, hiring kind of testing suppliers um, who were gathering that type of medical data and just, again, considering whether those kind of third parties were gathering kind of medical data in the right way um, and also just all, like making sure that, that processes were in place to make sure that um, the wider production team, you know, didn't have access to more personal data um, than was strictly necessary. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the data protection angle is also something that we, that we were kind of grappling with at the time. Actually, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about um, the sort of data protection issues. So thank you so much for um, sort of speaking to that. Um, okay, so um, one thing I've been really curious about is how how supported the industry has felt um, by the government generally. Um, and I know that one of the things they brought into place was something called the production restart scheme. Um, so, Katrine, would you be able to talk about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so, um, so yeah. So obviously, insurance became a really big problem for productions, kind of trying to get back on track. Um, and you know, producers were finding it impossible in some cases to get insurance covered for COVID-related losses, um, and that meant that you know, financiers just weren't funding productions. And so that kind of ultimately led the government to kind of launch the production restart scheme to kind of help producers who couldn't start or kind of restart production due to this lack of availability of insurance coverage um, by making kind of direct compensation available to cover these kind of COVID-related losses. Um, so the scheme, you know, there's, there's a lot to it and there's a lot of information out there about the scheme, but just kind of try and kind of condense it a little bit. But basically to qualify for the scheme, a production has to kind of tick various boxes, including that the kind of film production, sorry, the production company has to be resident uh, in the UK for tax purposes. Um, the production kind of has to meet the UK cultural test um, and at least 50% of the production budget has to be spent in the UK. Um, and these are just a kind of couple of examples. Um, as a producer, you have to provide evidence that you haven't been able to obtain that kind of insurance cover for, for COVID-related risks uh, on commercially viable terms. Um, and, you know, there's other restrictions around the scheme. So the maximum of production can claim under the scheme is £5 million. Uh, there's a fee to participate of 1% of the production budget. And also only certain losses are covered. So uh, main, the main losses are where kind of key cast or crew members contract the virus um, or they need to take time off because an, an immediate family member contracted the virus. Um, and also kind of losses caused by the various lockdowns that were put in place, for example, where productions couldn't kind of get into locations because of this restrictions put in place um, or because kind of key members of kind of cast or crew had to self-isolate in line with government guidelines with government guidance. Um, so again, there's various other requirements and exclusions around kind of testing, um, complying with uh, the BFC industry guidance, um, kind of having diversity policies in place. Uh, and again, there's lots of other examples. So the, the scheme currently applies to productions that commence filming before the end of April this year. And that date has kind of been uh, moved a couple of times. And it's now at the moment currently set to cover losses incurred by producers up until the end of June this year. And we'll obviously see if that if the government pushes that date again. 
Um, just a general comment. It was obviously set up in the right, you know, kind of as a step in the right direction from the government. Um, but as a result of the rules being quite onerous, um, the uptake hasn't kind of, uh, in our experience, been quite as widespread as expected. Yeah, that's actually, um, yeah, it's really, really helpful um, to kind of get a bit of background to that because um, I've heard it mentioned but didn't know much about it. Um, Olushoga, have you got anything to add about the production restart scheme or just generally how you feel like the the arts industry has been supported during this pandemic? Well, I think it was covered very succinctly uh, just before. Uh, um, uh, but well, one thing I would add uh, is there is a bit of a kicker in terms of what would happen if a producer had to make a claim for abandonment. Because in that respect, if the scheme paid out, um, then the DCMS, who uh, manages the scheme, although it's sort of administered through a, a different agency, the DCMS can actually ask you to hand over all the rights in your production. So all the IP in your production, that could go to the DCMS, or they could ask you to give uh, a legally binding undertaking that you won't either sell or transfer or somehow exploit uh, the IP in that production for a period of 10 years, unless you pay back the money that that they paid out to you under the scheme. So, you know, that's sort of tucked in quite quite close to the end of, of all the scheme rules. So, you know, it, it was, it's good that the, the, the government had provided that scheme after being lobbied by the industry. And in fact, well, some, some of my colleagues at ITV, including Magnus Brook, were quite key in, in achieving that. Um, but, you know, there, there is this sort of uh, kicker, for want of a better phrase, if you did actually make a claim for abandonment uh, under the scheme. So producers do, do need to be careful as to whether or not they feel it's actually appropriate to take out protection under that scheme. Um, okay, so, um, so typically in sort of March, October, you tend to have your sort of um, trade industry events. So you'd have like your MIP or you'd have cans and things like that. Um, obviously, that had to be cancelled last year. And I'm hearing that that will be cancelled again. Um, so do you think that there are any sort of pros and cons um, of having of not being able to do the normal trade festivals or upfront screenings? Um, Nick, I, I imagine that's maybe something you tend to sort of travel for sure yes as a distribution business we do a lot of traveling to uh to festivals and to markets all over the world um and uh pretty much all of them have had to to move on to online or to postpone uh, or cancel um and yet there have been pros and cons for that um in a light-hearted way uh, i guess i could say one pro has been that i've been traveling to can twice a year for the last nearly 15 years um, for, for a week each time. Uh, and it's a bit, a bit like, uh, you know, being dragged on the same family holiday with your parents um, every year. So I was quite sick of can and quite happy uh, not to have to go this time. But now, now that it's been a whole year of 2020 of not being in can, I, I miss it and want to get back. Um, but on, on more seriously, um, I think the, the pros would be that um, there's been a lot of money saved. Um, not just in terms of the cost of uh, travel and subsistence, um, but to, uh, to to take a stand um, at a market is uh, eye-wateringly expensive. Um, so that's been money that's been been saved. Um, it's also been an opportunity to speak directly, uh, to have maybe more longer conversations with uh, buyers and partners. Um, and be in their homes, um, you know, you kind of get that uh, connection of, you know, Zoom calls being, uh, they're not so rushed as they can be if you're, uh, you know, at a, at a festival where there's a lot of noise and a lot of other people around and a lot of other meetings to rush into. So I guess those would be some, uh, some positives. Um, negative side, I think it's a lot harder to, to make a big noise. Um, uh, at a market, you can, uh, you can, do you can have uh, poster boards you can have screenings um there's just general buzz people talk to each other when they've seen something good and it kind of spreads around that doesn't happen um when you're trying to uh, conduct things uh, things virtually um and i think nothing really beats uh, physical interaction um i don't think 
although I'm sure, and we'll probably get onto this, I'm sure that the, the industry will, will change uh, given what we've all learned about what we can do from home and what we can do on Teams and Zoom and uh, you know other uh, video conferencing systems. I don't think anybody wants to uh, never go back to uh, to meeting people in person again. I think we all probably miss uh, miss that. So uh, I think you know those are kind of some of the key pros and cons. Oh, and so okay. I guess one other thing um, would be that uh, you know for us as a you know established big distributor, it's not been so bad to miss the markets because the buyers still want to see us and we have those relationships. But if you're a new newer um, company or if you have a newer project that you were hoping to take out and to get interested in to get uh, and to pitch, then you're really at a disadvantage um, trying to you know start these conversations um, uh, from from scratch and trying to get into people's uh, you know to, to get into people take people to take you seriously when um, you, you know you, you couldn't meet them in the flesh. So that's a challenge. Okay. Um, yeah, no, it'd be interesting to see um, how things sort of change going forward, because I can sort of definitely see that a lot of workplaces will probably encourage way more working from home. And you just kind of think, will people want to, will the industry want to sort of cut some of the costs that you have with, you know, all the big entertaining that they do at things like Cannes um, by sort of replacing it with virtual screening. So, um, so yeah, I know it's quite um, interesting. Um, so we've just actually had a question in from um, the audience about um, health and safety checks. And I just kind of wanted to just ask that off the back of what, um, Katrin, um, what Katrin was speaking about in terms of um, the health information that people have to give. Um, so someone has asked whether um, health and safety checks now include um, COVID testing. Um is that something that you're able to um, answer, Katrine, or perhaps Damien? Um, I mean, I'm not so, sure I can ask it, um, answer it uh, properly, um, but because um, I can't actually recall if under the BFC guidelines you have to do um, testing. And health and safety legislation uh, is actually quite separate, really, to all of the industry guidelines and the industry guidance. So I think that's the kind of first thing. It, it probably isn't a requirement under health and safety legislation, but I imagine it is a requirement under the kind of BFC guidelines. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Um, hopefully that's helped to answer um, your question. Um, okay. And then um, the next thing I wanted to kind of look at is um, is sort of talking about streaming services, um, because obviously with so many people at home, I think, you know, demand for content, as we spoke about earlier, has probably been like never before. And, um, you, you know, obviously we've seen during this period, um, people like Disney Plus get so many um, new subscribers. I think they've hit something like, um, well, I know Netflix has hit something like 200 million um globally and i i don't think that um disney plus is that far behind so um it seems like they've been some of the big winners in the industry um streaming services um what do you think will be some of the sort of key learnings for um content businesses potentially especially those which have um streaming services um as a result of the pandemic um nick is that something you'd be able to speak to sure um I think it may be a little bit early to say that the streaming services have been uh, the big winners. Um, certainly streaming has become more and more popular um, and there's more and more streaming services out there. Um, but profitability is, I guess, a, a different question. Um, I think actually maybe the big winners have been um, producers and distributors. Um, you know, uh, within the All3 Media Group, I know that we've got a number of things that are uh, have either been produced or in production for um, the big streaming services with really high budgets, um, higher than we would have um, been able to get from a, a UK a domestic broadcaster typically. Um, so, and I think there are more opportunities out there because there are more buyers with all these streaming services that have launched and they're desperate for content because they don't just have to fill a traditional TV grid, they need to have something for everybody um, at all times. So, I think us as producers and distributors have been the winners. 
Um, we'll have to wait and see which of the streaming services will will end up winning uh, the battle because my uh, my guess is that not all of them will survive. That they, I'm not sure that that um, the public are willing to pay for uh, you know as many streaming services as, as there are out there, and maybe not as many as they're paying for now in the midst of a pandemic when they have a lot of time to watch. Um, when things go back to normal. Uh, maybe they'll cut down and only, um, you know, focus on one or two streaming sites. And maybe then, um, I mean, we've already seen that uh, Quibi has uh, has kind of uh, failed and and, uh, and that's gone. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with um, some more niche uh, streaming sites. Um, uh, so the, 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 the founder of Spungold has uh, launched True Royalty, which is a, a VO, VOD um, platform uh, about royal content. Um, the producers uh, World of Wonder have launched uh, WOW Plus, um, which is uh, you know a, a niche VOD service for um, some some of the content they produce. So I think um, that that will be an interesting thing to to watch develop. But uh, who the winners will be, uh, watch this space. Remains to be seen. <laughs> okay. Um... So what do you, as a just as a group, um, see as some of the sort of key opportunities for the industry in the sort of post-COVID um, climate? Um, I think Nick sort of touched on some things. And obviously, it's, you know, a great opportunity for producers because there is this demand for content. Um, but um, what do you think are sort of the other opportunities um I think I'll kick off with um with Damien if that's okay. Yeah, I think it's probably early still, and I think there's a lot of businesses, particularly those who have been you know greatly impacted and have had to sort of stop filming and consider the programs they have, particularly those that require audiences, particularly those that require lots of people on set, for example, um, and to be mixed, uh, it, it creates difficulties. And so I think perhaps one of the opportunities is for a business to sort of look at its portfolio programming, consider the makeup of that, the formats, um, and perhaps rejig, and perhaps widen the type of programming they produce. Of course, um, that is sort of a longer game. Um, but I think that is perhaps a potential opportunity. And like I said, I think at the moment it's still quite challenging and quite difficult. Um, and I can't quite think of all of the sort of great opportunities that are coming from it as yet. I think what it has caused businesses to perhaps do is sort of slow down a bit and just perhaps consider the way in which we're working. Because I think from a human perspective, um, it's been challenging on the psyche, I think. And I think it's made all of us realise that we can do our jobs from home. We can work in a remote way. We can all get together and still produce amazing content with much effort um, and some difficulties and some hurdles. Um, so I think it's also perhaps made people be a bit more human because I think you get on doing like this, you see everyone, you see everyone, and I think it's sort of hopefully maybe in some way connected us all a bit more in a together way. So hopefully more human connection um, and, you know, from a business sense, perhaps just to consider portfolio um, and different type of content that can be made I think under the circumstances okay great um Olusherga? I would reiterate what uh, Damien has just said I think it, we need to embrace more flexible working because it's all been proven that it can be done and post-covid I'm sort of very much looking forward not to returning to exactly how things were but to a better situation in a better world uh, without sounding uh, a bit too sort of airy-fairy. I think we should take the opportunity where we can, you know, not to travel by by, by plane or you know, have that meeting on Zoom. I, I think we all know Zoom meetings or Hangouts or Teams or whatever it is we're having, they can be very, very tiring. But in terms of the environment, if you can have a meeting rather than flying to LA over Zoom, then like, good for good, good for the production budget and good for the environment. So um, I'm very much looking forward to maybe some of those things continuing, um, so long as it doesn't uh, have an adverse effect on, on our health. Katrine? Um, 
Yeah, I'll just add one or two points, maybe. Obviously, a lot has already been covered, but um, I think one opportunity for the industry uh, kind of post-COVID is, gonna, is going to be to maintain a focus on mental health. Um, I think that almost kind of um, fits in quite nicely with kind of the flexible working um, regime, which we're all now so familiar with. Um, but I do think that hopefully the recognition that some work can actually be done quite effectively from home may actually lead to a better kind of work-life balance um, kind of for some crew members, for example. Um, but I do think mental health is a good one for the industry to kind of, uh, you know, take forward uh, post-COVID. Um, and then the other thing um, is to kind of, is actually wrapping up a, a bit with me too, but the requirement uh, to maintain physical distance has obviously changed a lot of practices on set. Um, and the hope is that this can actually lead to some of the anti-harassment measures um, that, you know, people have been talking about and trying to put in place having actually more meaningful impact. Um, and then just related to that, obviously filming of kind of intimate scenes um, have been handled very differently uh, during the pandemic. And obviously, hopefully that will um, actually lead to a kind of longer term change uh, in the way that, that those kinds of scenes are handled. Okay. That's actually a really, really good point, which um, I hadn't thought about. So thank you so much for bringing that up. That's amazing. Um, okay, so um, we're starting to get a few more audience questions in, and I think it's um, in about time for them to have their um, have a, a chance to answer questions. So one of the questions we've had through from the YouTube chat is, um, has COVID changed strategic approaches in regards to format buying and selling? Are people looking to diversity more or are they more cautious about shows with live audiences? So that's just coming from Elana. Um, who wants to kick off with that? Um, is that actually Nick? Is that something you could speak to? Um, because it's sort of focused on uh, on um, format buying. Sure, um, I would say uh, I'm not sure that the the, the pandemic has had a, an effect on uh, on diversity. I think there's there's been an, a, a, that's already kind of um, something that broadcasters, not just in the UK. Um, and producers as well um, have been focusing on for for the last uh, little period of time, and I think we're starting to see change in that, which is which is great to see. I, I'm not sure if that's been brought about by the by the pandemic. Um, I think what has happened, it's maybe um, uh, the fact that meetings can take place um, on or have to take place at the moment on video conferencing. I think has um, has opened up uh, the the playing field a little bit. Um, it's meant especially that uh, producers, if we talk about the UK, producers in the regions haven't got to maybe travel down to London um, uh, all the time to try and get a meeting with, with broadcasters. Um, so I think that's made a big difference and it's, it's made it easier for, uh, for lots of people to, uh, to, to access commissioners. Um, so I think that means that there'll be a, uh, uh, maybe some different voices uh, or you'll see more of them. Um, on TV from, from different production companies in different regions. Um, I, I can't see the question anymore. There was another part to it, which I've forgotten, sorry. Um, okay, sorry, let me just pull that up. Um, so, um, it, well, I, bet, I guess it was just about whether COVID had changed strategic approaches in regards to format buying and selling, and just are people looking to diversify more or are they more cautious about shows with live audiences? So, sure. I think you've I think kind live of dealt with a lot of that. Yeah, I think it just depends on the country. So we've just had a show in Australia where they had a live audience because, you know, they were able to do that. But it just depends on regulations in, in the different countries. Uh, I guess one thing in terms of format buying um, and selling, I think, again, it just comes down to what is practically possible. Um, I think what it has done is opened up opportunities for new shows. So in the Netherlands, where Survivor is a very successful show, they haven't been able to record that. And so we've been commissioned with a new reality show um, uh, and that slot may not have been open to us uh, had Survivor been able to be produced as, as, as per normal. Okay, thank you so much for that. Um, okay, we've had another question through, and this one is about force majeure. Um, so um, maybe um, Katrine and maybe perhaps Damien can um, look into this one. So um, the question is, um, has COVID changed strategic approaches in regards to format buying and selling oh sorry no um so uh, <laughs> um 
has, um, have you found any areas where recompense for the impact of COVID-19 has been successfully reclaimed through pre-COVID insurance policies? So that's a question from Tim on force majeure and acts of God. Um, sorry, I know I, I had got the wrong question initially. So do you want me to repeat that or do you got that? I think I've, okay. I've got that. So, um, um, okay. Okay. I was going to say, to, to my knowledge, and um, Katrine may have sort of a different um, answer, but to my knowledge, I'm not aware of anyone being able to sort of claim, particularly at the, at the heart of the pandemic when everyone had to immediately sus suspend and terminate. I'm not aware of anyone that was able to go to the relevant policy and say, hey, this has happened. Can you pay out on this? I think what everyone had to do was essentially work out what the relevant costs were to suspend go to the broadcaster cap in, hand, cap in hand and say, these are our committed costs at this stage. And generally the, the position is if you're terminating, most broadcasters will pay all costs that you've committed to and can't get out of at the point of having to suspend or terminate. Um, normally in your waterfall or in contracting, equally you're only liable to pay those um, monies up to the point that you're suspending or terminating their contract. So it flows down in the waterfall. So really it was going to the broadcasters and saying, we need this money from you because we're committed to these costs at X date of, of terminating the contracts we can't, you know, we can get out of essentially. Um, so I'm not aware of anyone getting money from insurers. I don't know if you have a different um, position on that, Katrine. No, no, that's that's exactly what, what I said as well, Damien. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Mm. Okay. Um, actually, something that um, I was quite interested in, just to um, skip in again into um, the main question person, is um, I wanted to know whether there'd been any sort of new models that you had sort of seen um, being introduced as a result of what's um, happened with the pandemic. Do you mean um, like, so a like a contracting perspective? Yeah, for, um, whether business or, 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 or in terms of contracts. I think from a rights perspective, I think broadcasters are still asking for what rights they want. I think what you're seeing typically though is just conditions to funding so that they have a, a COVID um, sort of mit mitigation policy in place that um, they have eligibility to the restart scheme. I think broadcasters are requiring that, that you follow your policies throughout. Um, and generally broadcasters have always had generally an existing right to take over. So of course there are real costs at stake. So producers are balancing running a business and so if they were to go bust, um, broadcasters generally have a right of takeover so they can step in to the shoes of the broadcaster and complete the production because ultimately broadcasters want the product they're funding. So those protections still exist for the broadcaster. I don't think the rights they're requesting has changed. But in terms of a contracting perspective, I think the key is flexibility in trying to, you know, in being able to get out of contracts in the event things go hairy and horrible for the nation again. So... You know, I've worked on a number of studio hires last year where typically they would say, you know, COVID is not an event of force majeure. So if COVID happens, a COVID event happens and you need to pay right up to the contract, ultimately the business media run relationships, ultimately, ultimately you're, you, you want repeat business. So it's sort of you're coming together to reach a fair compromise. So mm. you're just building in flexibility to terminate and ultimately trying to reach a position of paying what costs are fair to pay. So that there, you know, the relevant person you've engaged isn't completely out of pocket, particularly if it's a services company. Um, and also that as a producer, you're not bearing more than what the budget could already handle anyway. So I think it's just really being upfront with your contracts and, and building in what are fair and flexible to sort of termination and exit policies and provisions. I think Damien's absolutely okay. right. And, and and I would add to that that, you know, even though your force majeure clause is there, sometimes it really just comes down to having sensible discussions either between producer and broadcaster or producer and talent as to, you know, how we can make this work and to take account of the situation uh, to variable success. Sometimes that has worked and you know, either the broadcaster or the contributor or presenter whom you're contracting with has been sensible and there has been a fair compromise which has been reached, but in other times that, that hasn't been achieved. One thing I would add, um, and this goes to the point of the uh, insurance uh, scheme, is that obviously it was always the case that a producer would always wish to get their production agreement signed before committing to production or before production started. But it's it's one of the requirements of the scheme to make absolutely sure that when you hand in your scheme application, 
you've also got a production contract. And that in itself, that puts more pressure on the producer to get that contract agreed or get that trust letter agreed. And it may well be that in doing so, negotiations are short-circuited and the producer ends up agreeing terms that the producer would otherwise not agree or, you know, Perhaps if there was more time to have that negotiation, maybe they would have come to a better compromise. And the fact that it is agreed in that production agreement, it could well be uh, a bit of a yoke around the neck for when the uh, producer and broadcaster uh, subsequently um, contract for a second series. So that, uh, I think, has put some pressure on um, uh, producers just to make sure that that production contract or production agreement or whatever it is that, that you have with your broadcaster is is agreed uh, uh, sooner rather than later. Okay, so I think we have um, probably our last question, which has just come through in on the audience. So, in light of COVID restrictions, when filming an interview in a contributor's home, are we still use the, Are we still seeing use of standard contributor agreements or additional paperwork? So that's just come through from Nick. Um, who wants to bat that one out? Would, is that something that you can speak to, Katrine or maybe Damien? Um, so I haven't seen um, myself um, any kind of additional specific paperwork. Um, I think most kind of uh, kind of contributor agreements will include, um, you know, consent, obviously, for that, you know, for the, the team to be in your home. Um, so, so I, like from my experience, I haven't seen anything kind of um, above and beyond that specifically to deal with, um, to specifically to address COVID, because I think generally contributor agreements are drafted quite broadly and, and cover off all the consents um, that the crew and the, the producer would need to, to do the filming. I don't know if anyone else can wants to add to that. Yeah, I mean, Chogga may add some additions to what I say, but I'm sure he's sort of largely seen the same. Ultimately, your contributor agreements remain in the same, but, you know, PACs generally have issued guidance. And I think one of the key things including is just an awareness of risk. So we're all operating in a, in a world where we know COVID is currently happening and is upon us. So ultimately, we're all actively and of our own volition agreeing to be a part of the production. So you're just adding sort of awareness of risk language and you're adding in language into your agreements that ultimately the producer has policies in place to mitigate, you know, anyone contracting COVID and you make that available to the relevant contributors that they need to comply with it also. Um, and generally you're requesting contributors to have a period of um, self-isolation before they film. So, of course, you can tease out if anyone's got any um, symptoms that may develop in the period before filming. Um, and then again, just building in your flexibility to suspend or terminate if someone suddenly does present symptoms so that you're not bound to then essentially pay out any monies if of course it's a, it's a fee paid contributor. So I think it's more just building in the fact that you've got policies in place that they need to follow um, and that they're aware that there are risks in taking part in the production. Okay, perfect. Um, Ola Shoga, I'm not sure if you had anything to add to that. We've got maybe one minute for, um, for the answer for that last question. <laughs> Where possible, we've we try to avoid filming in people's homes. Really, if if we can get a, a connection with uh, some form of video uh, Zoom or, or or Hangout or Teams, and and that's probably preferable. And we've also tried to make absolutely sure that if we have to film with somebody who's coming from home, that they don't live with somebody who is sort of clinically extremely vulnerable, because that in itself will probably heighten the risk. So I think I would avoid filming in people's homes. That would be my advice. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so just want to thank everybody for um, on the panel for joining in on this discussion, which has been actually really useful and very, very insightful. So hope um, those watching at home have also enjoyed it. And I just thank you guys for um, taking your time out of your business schedule to join us. So thank you. Thank you, Nana. Thank, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. The RTS London Podcast.